Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning, Oak City Church. We're glad that you're tuned in this morning. We would really rather that you be here. Uh, It would be a lot more fun if we were all together and connected in that way. And we miss it, but we trust that God is doing great work. And we know know he is during the midst of this. And um, so we pray that you're well and let us know if there are needs that you have that we can help you out in the midst of this. Uh, By way of announcement, tonight we are starting our study with Chosen Generation. Uh, called Oneness Embraced. It's a right now media study by Tony Evans, and it's going to start at 7. I think it's going to go to 8.15. We're going to watch that study and then break off into some Zoom small groups and talk through it. It's a great opportunity, and so on the webpage, on our homepage, it's under events. You can find out more information on how to get uh, that Zoom link to to get started with it. We're going to start a series this morning in the book of Nehemiah, an Old Testament book of Nehemiah that we've, we've uh, titled Respond, Renew, and Rebuild. And this was, I had planned to do something different through the summer and then going into the fall and then really started thinking, man, I need to figure something out that's a little bit more story driven so that it'd be a little bit easier for people to follow. And maybe I can keep my, I'm going to try and keep my messages a little bit shorter because we've got, got younger folks um, tuning in. And so I chose this book about a month and a half ago. I was like, Nehemiah, yeah, Nehemiah's what, what I need to do. Uh, and then I started getting into the book and I realized, gosh, this book is perfect for what we're going through right now. And I think you're quickly going to figure that out. So I'm going to jump right in. This is Nehemiah chapter one, verse one, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. So Hakaliah is his dad. That actually in, um, in Hebrew is apparently pronounced Kakaliah, which is the one whom God enlightens. And so that's, that's Nehemiah's dad. It says, now this happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem and they said the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so here is my first point for the day. You have to see the problems around you. Real simple, but you have to see the problems around you. Now, Daniel, can you go back? Can you put that, the verse back up? There's a lot in this verse that's just background information, and I'm going to try and cover this uh, fairly quickly, but one of the things he mentioned is that the, they were the Jews who had escaped and survived the exile. And so the exile is a time period in the history of Israel, of the Jewish nation. And so there's a map that's going to come up and cover my face now. And on the lower left-hand side, maybe right-hand side, your right-hand side of that map, you see Ur. And way back in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, this is where Abraham comes from, is Ur. And then he goes up um, to a place called Haran, and then he comes down to what is the promised land. And he goes up and comes down because that is the Fertile Crescent. And you learned about that in history class and took a test and promptly forgot it. But that's what it is because there's rivers there and it's not a desert. So he went down to the promised land. And then Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had a bunch of kids. And uh, they started this nation. Uh, and then they ended up down in Egypt for 400 years you know, enslaved uh, to Pharaoh and the Exodus happened and Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And they went out into the desert and they wandered around for 40 years in the desert and God gave them the law on Mount Sinai, the 10 commandments and the law. And then finally Joshua took them into the promised land and they lived there under the judges for a few hundred years. And they got kings for a few more hundred years. 
But there came a time when God took them out of that land into an exile, a time of exile. And so when he had given them the law in the desert, he said, hey, you uphold your end of the bargain, I'll uphold my end of the bargain, but if you guys don't, then I'm gonna, you're gonna go, he told them that hundreds of years beforehand, I'm gonna kick you out of the land. And God was patient with them and told them over and over again, hey, you gotta get it together. Uh, but they didn't, and I, I said this a few weeks ago, that they, they eventually became worse than the people that God had kicked out of the land before, um, before the Jewish people went into the land. And so he sent them to exile to, to Babylon and to Assyria, and this is the group that went to Babylon. So we can get rid of the map, but that is the exile, is they went into uh, Babylon, and that's a period of history for the Jewish nation. Now, when Nehemiah says it, this happened in the 20th year, that is the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes. And Ar- Artaxerxes is one of the Persian kings um, that they had been under. And this probably happens around 446 BC. And a guy named Ezra has already returned to the land and he's rebuilt the temple. And now we're going to see, um, in short order, Nehemiah return. And then Susa, just they mentioned the city Susa, that's the winter uh, residence of the kings of Persia. So that is the, like the big context of what's going on here. Nehemiah's in exile. He's serving Artaxerxes, this king, and he's going to go to him. And it starts with Nehemiah saying, I asked him. His brother came back from Jerusalem. And for, from all we know, Nehemiah's never been there. And he says, I asked him. I asked him what's going on. Now that doesn't, that doesn't seem like much, you know, but this is the, like, we ask each other all the time. You see somebody and say, how you're doing? But you don't always have time or energy or the will to listen to what they say and to respond to what they say. And so we just kind of gloss over it. You ask me that question. A lot of times I'm kind of awkward because I really want to think through how am I doing? And um, I want I want to give you an honest answer about it. Uh, and he, But he asked them and it's going to become quickly clear that Nehemiah hears them and he's really listening to what's going on. And what's going on is the walls have been broken down and the gates have been destroyed by fire in the city of Jerusalem, the city of their forefathers. Now, this for us, you know, walls don't mean anything to us. Raleigh has never had city walls that have been broken down. Uh, they're actually, if, if you, I've been in Raleigh for a long time now, you go up Wake Forest Road coming out of downtown, there's one of those little historical signs on the side of the road and it says the breastworks of Raleigh and it talks about, like, apparently when the Civil War was happening, they dug some ditches, and those were the walls of Raleigh. I've actually gone back there to look for them and never been able to find them. Some of you live in Mordecai. You probably know where they are. Um, get with me. I want to I see them. But that's the closest that we've ever had uh, to Raleigh's, to, to walls, is these, um, these ditches. But, and we, we understand um, that it's security, but it's more than just security for a city. It's also identity. When you go back through history, and look at walls. You think about famous walls, the walls of Jericho, uh, Hadrian's Wall in, in Britain, the Great Wall of China, ancient cities. We know this. They all had walls, and a lot of, a lot of it was just for security. And we can kind of get that because we watch movies like Lord of the Rings, and we see them retreat within the walls, and the walls get beaten down. But it was more than that. It was also uh, about identity and about fostering a sense of belonging and community, and the, this is us. This is our strength. These are our people. And in some ways, we still, in weird ways, we still do that, you know? Um, if, you, if you have a house, you live in a neighborhood. I just mentioned Mordecai. That's a neighborhood. Um, but we live in a neighborhood. And not many of us have 
gated neighborhoods, you know, and we kind of make fun of that. We think it's a little bit obnoxious to have gated communities with walls, but we still have boundaries where we identify and say, this is where we belong and this is our community and we organize around that and it's helpful. And so in some ways, that's a sense of what was going on here. Even though Raleigh hasn't had walls for 150 years, Raleigh has like a form of gates And so right now, the city is spending a bunch of money on Hillsborough Street, and they're spending a bunch of money on Capitol, and they're spending a bunch of money on South Saunders and New Bern because those main entryways into the city say something about the city, and they want it. You never get a second chance to make a first impression. They want to say the right thing. And so uh, you drive into town on Capitol, and it's radically changed over the last few years as they've changed that, and it serves as a form of a gate. And for ancient cities, like it was the gate. That's what it represented. And so the gates were magnificent for some of these cities. We can think in real general terms about walls, and walls give you privacy. And there's a semblance of that. Like not many of you live in a studio apartment, and none of you live in a studio house. None of you decided to take all the walls out of your house, and we're just going to live in this big common space, you know, because you literally feel naked when you don't have walls around you. So we build walls. And so uh, walls of a city enabled that for a people in a certain way. And and hopefully you've never had your house broken into. We've never had a house broken into. We've had our cars rifled through. And even that, like, just ticks me off, you know, because someone's violated a boundary. And I can only imagine what it would be like to have your house broken into and that boundary violated. Well, for a city, that's what the walls were. Somebody had violated that boundary and taken away their dignity. And and Nehemiah recognizes this. And so hear this. He didn't just notice their physical problems, but he noticed that it, it led to an emotional problem as well. He asked them, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble, and they're in shame. That physical trouble has led to a, an emotional indignity. It's led to shame because of the walls and the gates. So he sees the problems. Do you see, do you really see the problems that are going on around you? Because really seeing the problem takes some work. And so, again, this is super relevant. There's no shortage of problems. You know, when it comes to race in our nation, it takes work to, to feel that problem and to really do your best to understand the problem from an emotional and a physical standpoint if you're not a minority. And so you gotta, you got to put effort into that. And certainly there's a range of opinion on what caused the problem and how deep the problem is and the solution to the problem. But you gotta, there is a problem, and you got to work um, to, to, to learn about that. And so this study that we're starting tonight, man, take advantage of this opportunity and engage this. The Be the Bridge uh, small groups that we did a few years ago, there were such generous conversations and windows into experiences that people have had that are different than the ones that I've had. And so take advantage of the opportunity uh, to learn, to understand the problem. With the coronavirus, like similarly, this is a challenge to understand that problem because most of us haven't had firsthand, you know, interaction with the problem. My son's uh, girlfriend, I, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, she got the coronavirus, so we were under a little bit of a watch for a while. And so she had it for, for a few, two, three, four weeks, and she lo- but she lost her appetite and she got a little tired. It really wasn't that big of a deal. And so I think that's what we're struggling with right now is, is this a big deal? And for a certain part of the population, it's not that big of a deal, which is why we're experiencing this chaos. But, but, for a certain part of the population, it is a big deal. And 
Um, and it seems like the hospitalization rates are like way up. And so the whole flattening the curve thing that we talked about at the beginning is, is this is it, is we're reaching some capacity with our healthcare system. So even if it doesn't seem like it is to you, uh, it is to the people around you, but you gotta, you gotta work, you know, to learn about the problem. Spiritually, we are a church that has been, you know, given the mission to make disciples of all the nations. Do we understand the nature of that problem? People living apart from Christ is a problem. People are, they're made to walk with God in the cool of the day in the garden and, and for fellowship with God, but sin is separated from God and Christ is the means by which we are reconciled to God. And apart from that, um, because we're made to worship, we're worshiping the wrong gods in the wrong ways and that's making a mess of our lives and our communities and our world and that's a problem. And, and God has tasked us as the church with the mission of calling people into reconciliation to him through Christ. Do we see that that's the problem that we have been called to address as a church? Do you see the problems around you? Uh, do you see the problems in your family? Do you see the problems in your church? Do you see the problems in your neighborhood? Or are we so just tucked into our own stuff that we're not really paying attention to what's going on around us? So, so we got to see. We got to see. Here's the next thing with Nehemiah. You have to choose to engage the problems around you. You have to choose to, like, engage them. Um, and so you think about Nehemiah's world. Um, I mentioned this, that he's, they've been in exile for a long time by the time it gets to Nehemiah. From the math, I figured out it's about 140 years since they were taken to Babylon to the time of Nehemiah. So that's a, 140 years. That's like since the Civil War, you know. Like generations of his family have been raised in Babylon and Persia away from their homeland. For me, I think about this, like 140 years ago, I'm half Croatian and that whole family was in Croatia. It'd be like me paying attention to what's going on in Croatia and saying, I need to be a part of that. And that's a, that's a tough ask, but that's what Nehemiah is dealing with. And he's the cupbearer to the king. Uh, this is a, a sweet gig, if you can get it, to be cupbearer to the king. And I'll get into this later. How he as an exile got to be cupbearer to the king is a bit of a mystery, but they've been there his whole life. He's been there for 100 years, and so maybe they didn't even view him like that uh, as an exile at that point. But he's got a maid with that job. And he hears about this from Jerusalem, but you think about that information and how it got to him and what he can do with it. Like, it's not easy to get that information from Jerusalem. We, we just can't comprehend this because we are on information overload. Most of us are trying to filter out information because we just get too much that we know what to do with. It's not like that at all for them. You know, they got no internet, no 24-hour cable news because they have no TV and they don't have radios and the printing press would be invented 2,000 years down the line so they don't have newspapers. They got, they got news by messenger and it was weeks or months behind, you know. And so it would be easy for him to just kind of file that away into the out of sight, out of mind category uh, with that news. It would be easy for him to just go on with his life, to think that is so far away. There's nothing that I can possibly do about it. We've been gone for 150 years. This is no longer a problem, even to justify the position that he has spiritually and say, I'm a, a Jewish exile, but I have the ear of the king and I can't leave this spot because God's put me in this spot. But that's not what he does. He could have 
avoided the tension that comes along with the question, what am I supposed to do about this? Man, as soon as you open that door with the Lord and say, Lord, I've seen a problem, I'm engaging the problem, what do you want me to do about the problem? You have opened the door for a, a great amount of tension and uh, stress and maybe even chaos into your life. And that's what Nehemiah does. So here's what he does. He says, as soon as I heard these words from my brother, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. He sat, he just sat down. He sat down. This is a sermon where the cookies are on the bottom shelf, and I think that's on purpose, right? He just sat down, stopped what he was doing, and thought about what he had learned. I've talked a bit in the last few weeks and months about margin and pace and with the Art of Neighboring series and having margin for your neighbors, and this is part of margin, is when you see something that you can sit down and really spend some time uh, thinking about it. I had a, a friend text me this week, uh, a friend who's in Philadelphia, and just told a group of us that one of his younger brothers in his 30s had passed away, and he had kids that he'd left behind, and it's just a tragic situation, and there's nothing really we can do about that. I mean, we have prayed for him, and, and we've mourned, you know, uh, but there's an, there's an element of just sitting down and and like even every couple days texting that person and seeing how they're doing and letting them know that you're with them and engaging the tension that they have. Uh, Dan sent out a prayer request a few weeks ago about his brother and his sister-in-law and um, uh, it looked like they were gonna have a, um, a premature birth. And, and then it looked like the baby wasn't gonna make it and then the baby made it and so now they're waiting, but it's like a miracle thing, you know, but engaging that and just sitting down in it and engaging it. And I happened to be in Maryland and his brother's in Delaware and I about called Dan and be like, hey, let me go up there. And then I realized it's COVID, I can't go up there. And I don't even know his brother, like I've met him, but I don't know him, but I wanted to. Like, do you engage, do you just sit down and weep in a way and mourn the things that you see around you? He says he wept. He wept for this. And that takes, you got to engage, you know, like that's not easy. I don't, I don't cry at the drop of a hat, but you know, you know when I'll cry, this is being a pastor, I don't want to talk about this stuff, but movies, movies can get me. So we're at my in-laws and there's a rainy day and, and um, some, some of the folks are watching a movie in the living room and I pass through there and I look at it and it's about the Boston Marathon bombing. And I, I don't, you know, everybody remembers that. I remember they caught the guy in the boat and all this stuff, but I didn't really know the story. I'd never seen the movie. And so then I, but then I got caught up in it and I didn't know they got in this big shootout with those guys when the cops were chasing them and those guys were throwing bombs at them on this like city street. It was crazy. And, and then, but the end of the movie, when it's all done, they, they have a, um, a couple that was caught in the bombing and they interview them and they were represented in the movie because the lady lost both her legs beneath her knees and the guy lost one of his legs and they end up at separate hospitals 
and they're unconscious, so the hospital workers don't know who they are, or who they belong to, and then eventually they get them to the same hospital and they wake up and they find out that they're each other, like they're together, and it's an emotional thing, but then at the end, they interview them, and the lady is like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to us, but it is the best thing that's ever happened to us. And she said, I would give anything to have my legs back. She said, but the kindness that people have showed us throughout this whole thing and complete strangers and the way they've rallied around us has just changed our lives forever in ways that we could never have imagined. As she described that, Enneagram 9, people coming together, I'm like having to adjust my glasses, you know what I mean, to get some, I'm not like losing it, but I'm, but this gets me, like the stories get me, and movies do that because they tell stories, you know, do we let the stories of the people around us move us? Do we let them engage us? Do we take time to listen and to really get in and to, to think through it and to try and put ourselves in someone's shoes and let those engage us? Nehemiah sat down. He wept. He mourned for days. But we, we move so fast, it's easy not to get moved, not to really engage. Uh, half a million people worldwide have died from COVID, some 130,000 people in the United States. That's 130,000 families. And I know, I know even as I say this, because I know you, some of you are like, it's not 130,000 because they died from other things. Even so, it's a lot of people. <laughs> it's a lot of families that have lost their loved ones to COVID. And what we should do about that is like, that's all over, but, but we should lament and mourn that there are people that are suffering because they've lost loved ones. The jobless claims, I think, peaked at about 40 million people um, seeking unemployment because they've lost their jobs. That's 40 million families that are, you know, w wondering what the future holds. Be and in some ways, we all are, but like, it's on the line for those folks. And it's not, it's not many of us. It's not many of you. Not many in our church have lost jobs because of this, you know? So we gotta work to listen to those stories of people around us. When it comes to race, you gotta, you gotta listen to the experiences um, that folks that are different from you have had and engage their stories, uh, even if there's not a lot you can do in, in the moment. A lot of people have seen this, have watched uh, the movie Just Mercy, and we watched that as a family, and I read that book a few years ago, and in the book he goes through a lot more stories than just the main story uh, in the movie, and we watched that, and when I read the book, I was like, I can't believe this stuff still happens, and my kids were the same way, like, you just can't believe it, but that's the point. You got to engage it, you know? Uh, I, I mentioned a book from this spring, The Warmth of Other Suns, that I read is uh, similar to that. I've got a, a um, friend of mine who is in this pastor's cohort. He's a African-American pastor in his 50s in Charlotte. And, and we sat down one of the first times that we were together and he just kind of opened up and talked through some of the things that he's experienced. And it, you just don't, you don't realize it. And when it's someone that you know, it changes the way that you think about it and you sit and you weep and you mourn. I feel like in some ways, what is happening in our country right now is a, is a national mourning for what has happened for hundreds of years. Uh, and, and I think in a lot of ways, it's really, really appropriate. I think what didn't happen after the Civil War was a, and, and the government can't do this. They don't have language, it's not their job. The church does, calls people to this, is a repentance. 
a repentance that this was wrong and people suffered wrong and we lament with them and we mourn with them because of that. Uh, when it comes to problems, our, our church started really out of a form of, of a crisis, a spiritual crisis. We were at a church. It was a big, booming, growing mega church, but realized they were going to reach certain people the way they did things, but there's certain people that are going to walk into a room of 1,500 seats and 1,500 Christians and think there's something fishy about this. Like some people have a fundamental distrust of large groups of Christians. I understand why, and I know some of you are those people. And so everything we did about how we started our church and our vision for our church was geared at reaching that type of person because that was, was enough of a crisis for us to come out and start a church that was focused on that. And in many ways, we did that. We reached a lot of people that people like God uses different churches for different folks and different purposes and different people on their way to Jesus need like different spiritual on ramps. And our church is one for a certain group of people, but do we still have that sense of urgency and crisis of like God wants to use us to reach certain people? Are we engaged in those stories and realize there are people far from Christ that God wants to use Oak City to bring them closer to Christ? And are we willing to take on that tension in any of these situations and engage? Are you really engaged in what's going on around you? And that's, it's hard. And I know that it's hard right now, and it's hard because you can, you know, a lot of this, you see the need and you hear about the need on the news or somewhere on the internet, but you can't, you're not face-to-face with people. You don't have relationships with people that are experiencing, or you do, but you can't get face-to-face because we can't gather, you know? And so that makes it um, difficult. It's difficult because we're tired. Uh, This COVID thing has taken more out of us than I think any of us realize. There is a decision fatigue that comes along with it, where even if you're not running around the way that you used to, there's just a stress that's involved with everything that's going around us that makes it harder, I mean, to engage our own stuff, much less the problems of the people around us. Um, There's so much to engage that it can be overwhelming, and you can't engage all of it. And that's true, you can't engage all of it, but we have to engage some of it. And, um, and so much of it's on a scale where you can ask fairly, like, can I really make a difference in this? And so all of those things, all of those barriers push us to a place, and this is my last point for the morning, that you have to trust God with the cost of engaging the problems around you. Like, those questions are overwhelming. There is so much, and we are tired, and we can't engage everything, and it's on a huge scale. So what part does God want us to play? And this is what you see Nehemiah go through. Uh, That place of mourning, of really engaging, is a scary place to be because you you get engaged in the story, and you want to do something about it, uh, but you don't know what it's going to lead to. And I think God has that by design, Because what he wants is us to have a closer walk with him, to trust him more. And when we engage the problems of the people around us, that's what it's going to require, is a lot of contact with him um, to figure out how he wants us to be engaged. So this is what what Nehemiah does. And I'm skipping over a passage I'm going to come back to next week. Uh, But Nehemiah, it says, he was the cupbearer to the king. And in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. Then I was very much afraid. That's just an interesting scene. Like, why is he afraid 
in this moment. It's apparent that he has a good relationship with the king or he wouldn't be the cupbearer, but right now he's got a little bit of a panic. Nehemiah is a really interesting character if you think about it. You wouldn't think being a cupbearer to the king would prepare you to lead this massive engineering project across hundreds of miles that involves a lot of political engagements. And at some points you have to be like a William Wallace type leader of people in order to do it. This guy drinks stuff for a living. He's a cupbearer, you know, <laughs> and but here he is. Uh, and if you're the cupbearer, it's yeah, think about this. It's not good to be sad in the presence of the king. You know, the king's got a lot going on. Uh, that's why he has a cupbearer, because people are routinely trying to kill him, you know? And so he's got drama in his life. He doesn't need drama with cupbearer. When he has drama, when the cupbearer's got some drama, the king has to be thinking, wait a second, why does the cupbearer have drama? Has somebody gotten to the cupbearer? And so this is a huge risk that Nehemiah is taking with this conversation. And so he says to the king, let the king live forever, which I feel like is almost a way of saying, hey man, we're still on board with the cupbearer thing. Let the king live forever. I'm on your side. But why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And that, there's a little bit of attitude with that statement. And the king said to me, what are you asking for? And then he, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, he stands on a precipice there. Uh, he is taking his relationship with the king to a different place in this conversation. He is cashing his chips in. He honestly is using privilege that God has granted him in favor of others. And it's his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem in this situation. And he is going to turn his life upside down. He's going to leave everything he knows behind. He's going to leave the security of the known for the insecurity of a place where people are experiencing difficulty and shame. He's going to take that shame on himself in certain ways in the hopes that God is going to use him to do something about him. And that is the gospel. Nehemiah is, in this sense, a picture of Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. Jesus leaves his place in heaven. He empties himself. He considers himself a, a servant on our behalf. He humbles himself um, for us. He becomes cold and hungry and dirty, and he gets mocked and beaten and all those things for our benefit. That's what, that's what he does, and he calls us to do the same. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 16 says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And that is, Nehemiah is in this. He is about to lose his life for the sake of the mission of God that, that the Lord is calling him on. And, and that's, that's how this starts. Seeing the depth of that need, engaging the depth of that need was, is what sparks this urgency and this sense of mission and how critical this is. And it sparks a vision that says, here's what's possible. We could rebuild that wall and we could rebuild those gates and we could restore dignity to the people of Israel. And that's his vision. He goes after it, but it comes out of the urgency of really engaging what's going on. And again, the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That happened because he loved us. 
Jesus at one point looks on the crowds and sees that they're harassed and they're helpless like sheep that have no shepherd. And he has compassion for them. His guts turn over for them. And then he prays to the Lord of the harvest, send workers into the harvest. Let's do something about this. But it comes out of that compassion and out of that deep understanding of people's needs. That's what we're called to. Is that what we're doing? Are we really engaging the problems around us? Are we actively investigating and engaging them? Are we avoiding them? Are we avoiding them so that we won't have to do anything about them? Are you engaging at the depth that that you ought to? Are you purposely keeping yourself in a place where you won't have to do anything about them because you don't know enough to do anything about them? Has it cost you something? Has it cost you something to engage the problems of the people around you? Um, and we can't do everything, but we, we have to do something. Like individually as a church, we can't do everything, but we've got to em- be engaged in, in some things. I'm going to bring just a kind of a separate story into this. I was watching a movie um, with our kids, and it came out, I think, I don't know when it came out, maybe a year ago now, but it's called Unplanned. It's about uh, abortion. It's about the pro-life movement, and it's a story of a woman who was running a Planned Parenthood clinic in uh, Texas. She was like the employee of the year for Texas Planned Parenthood. And then she got called into, and she really believed in the cause and reducing unwanted pregnancies. And then she got called in to a procedure, to an abortion at one point. And she saw the the fetus move away from the probe that was coming in. And she realized she just engaged the plight of the unborn and she quit and it turned her around. And it's, the story is so compelling because she engages, she engages the plight of a people. And, um, I mean, that's a really good movie. And she, but she ends, there's a conversation that she has, and at one point, um, it, um, a pro-life guy says to her, he makes a comment about how the Holocaust and segregation and this could only happen when a segment of the population is dehumanized and that that's what's happened to the unborn. And that is when, it's, when they've been dehumanized, when someone chooses not to engage the story, when someone chooses not to see them as people and to really engage that that's when tragic stuff happenings, happens. What, what other tragedies are ongoing that we are just ignoring? Who has God called us to advocate for? Uh, I think we all have like a, a Nehemiah spot, a Nehemiah moment, and to different varying degrees, we're called into something, and are we engaging that? The, the study that's starting tonight, Ryan and Whitney aren't going to want me to say this, but this has happened because a few years ago they had this moment and realized they, Ryan and Whitney, are supposed to engage this. And they came to me and said, we're going to do whatever it takes to engage this, whether you want to or not. I'm like, I want to. Like, we had a long, long conversation about it. And that led to our relationship with Chosen Generation and partnership to the place where we're here because they engaged that. Um, I mean, Josh and Alan and Sunika, like they engaged that and God called them to it and it's led to these great things. And, so, and there's a lot of things that have happened here and around us, but what is supposed to happen uh, now? What is supposed to happen now? And one of the things that struck me about that movie was, um, and, and this is the frustrating thing, is because we, you got to trust God a lot to figure out the scope of what he wants. Like they had, they had prayed about this and, and the group had prayed they're, they're just really good in the way they went about what they were doing. We'll talk about that in weeks to come, but they, they prayed a lot about it. And God didn't shut down Planned Parenthood, but he did end up shutting down that clinic. And it made me think like God, oh God just has so many things going on and bigger things than we can think about and that we can understand. And he has us called to play a part in it. And that part may seem small to us, but may seem big to him. 
and we got to faithfully play the part that he's called us to. And I think about the Jewish people, and they went from Egypt, and they got into the promised land, and they probably envisioned Israel becoming like Rome and taking over the world, but that wasn't God's plan, and they end up in exile. And one of the commentaries I read said when they came back to um, Jerusalem after that time of exile, they were more Jewish than they were before they left because they had formed into a people in the midst of that crisis, and then they came back and re-inhabited the promised land and a few more hundred years on and Jesus comes out of that and that was God's plan because God wanted all the nations and not just Israel. And so God knows what he's doing, but he calls us to be faithful and to follow him into what it is that he's called us to. I'm gonna read um, just one more uh, paragraph out of, out of a book that struck me as I was thinking about this. And this is a book I mentioned in my weekly blurb a few weeks ago and have kept reading it. It's great. I can't recommend this enough. But she has a chapter on does religion, does religion cause violence? And she engages that. And towards the end of it, she talks about the gospel and the natural fruit that comes from the gospel. And she says this, this belief, the gospel, when drunk of deeply, motivates action. It, motivates Christians in the, it motivated Christians in the fourth century to create places where the sick and poor could be cared for, places we now call hospitals. It motivated Martin Luther King to believe that nonviolent resistance could, be overcome, could overcome violent oppression. And it motivates Christians today to sacrifice themselves across the world in the service of others. In a New York Times op-ed entitled Evangelicals Without the Blowhards, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and human rights activist Nicholas Kristof, who I don't believe is a Christian, writes, Go to the front lines, at home or abroad, in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, or genocide, and some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians or conservative Catholics, similar in many ways, who truly live their faith. Like, the belief leads to action. Does religion cause violence? It certainly can, but millions of people are driven by their faith to love and serve others, and Christianity in particular has served as a fertilizer for democracy, a motivation for justice, and a mandate for healing. If we think the world would be less violent without it, we may need to check our facts. That's what we've been called into. That's the movement that we are a part of as followers of Jesus. And so the questions we're going to be asking over the next several weeks is what specifically is it for us individually and for us as a church right now that he's calling us into. Father, I thank you for this story that is uh, thousands of years old, Lord, uh, but is super relevant for all that we're going through today. And so, God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and our minds. I pray even as I say this, um, you would be convicting me, that you would be convicting us. Lord, not of everything. You, you don't call us to be engaged in everything, but you call us to be engaged in specific things that are a part of your plan. God, would we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and would we be prepared to lose our lives in order to save our lives because that's what you've called us to do. You've called us to follow you um, in the gospel and because of the gospel. And so, Lord, uh, would you lead us and would we follow God? We love you, Lord. Um, we need you. Uh, we long for you in these days in ways that we haven't previously, Lord. We need your spirit to lead us in new ways, uh, down new roads, Lord, uh, for your glory. We love you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.